Hiya, it's your MC, David, here. If you're new to the show, welcome. I'm so glad you've joined us for The Watch. It is an incredible game, and you're in for a good time. If this isn't your first ride on the Toad Rodeo, uh, you've probably already noticed that we have two setup episodes this arc. That's because Setup for the Watch is practically a game unto itself, certainly a full episode zero if you're running it at home. Even after lots of editing, there was still a ton of good and interesting content, so to make things a bit more manageable, I've split the Watch setup into two episodes. In this episode, we introduce our cast, discuss gender and how we relate to it, a very important topic which is baked into the Watch, and then break down the basic structures of the system itself. If you're looking for character and world building, you're in the wrong place. That's next episode. As always, there are section time codes in the show notes, so you can skip around to the sections that interest you, or if this kind of setup just isn't your thing, we'll always have a recap at the start of the first episode to give you the skinny on what's important. However you take your Toto, we're happy to have you. Enjoy the episode. rolling yeah we got a timetable to live to hello uh my name's david i am the host of trials of the apocalypse a podcast where we play different powered by the apocalypse games uh with a rotating cast rotating players and uh usually we have a pretty good time uh today i have the absolute pleasure of being joined with uh both some guests which you've all heard before and also a new special guest uh, do you want me to announce you first or last? I don't care, honestly. And you can also edit it around, I imagine. Whatever oh, yeah. Better. Uh, that's true. That's fair. We can always rearrange. And a secret special guest who's so secret that we're not going to say her name until the very, very end of time. <laughs> Wait, that's too late. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're right. You're right. <laughs> Roll back the heat up of the universe. And I'm Dan, and I'm also here to play games. <laughs> games. Spiraling amongst the endless void between stars. He's death. <laughs> Well, there are worse ways to go. Uh, and the last thing the universe uttered. <laughs> is this what they call death of the author? <laughs> Honestly, I feel like I deserve that. So I'm okay with that. Uh, okay. Uh, so, hi, everybody. Uh, I, I wonder if that'll make it into the final cut. We'll see. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is David. I am the host of Trials of the Apocalypse, a, a show where we have the lovely opportunity to play different Powered by the Apocalypse games and to rotate through different folks who join us to play them. Uh, today, we'll be playing The Watch, and I am joined by... Oh, I'm first. Yep. Uh, hi, I'm Emma, and I'm a cis woman, and I am bi. All right. Uh, next. Uh, hello, this is Nyx, a uh, trans woman, uh, also bi. Hello, I'm Angelica, uh, more often known as Jell, uh, non-binary woman, uh, you know, like a, like a, kind of like a... Um, you know, like tricks that's got the two flavors that are together. I don't. Can I start over? <laughs> no, I love that. No, that's perfect. No, just start over though, just for fun. We might we silly might have rabbit. Together. Gender is. <laughs> I was gonna say something else. I didn't know we were introducing our genders right I, now. I didn't either. <laughs> I, I made cute. that decision. We don't have to do that. So, do I introduce myself now, or are we doing a retake of that? I, I think we're doing. A retake. <laughs> 
Or Sorry. I don't know. Oh, I God. thought that this was really stay. gay. I don't this might cut. fucking stay. <laughs> uh, sure. Uh, Dana, introduce yourself. This is our special guest. <laughs> I'm Dana, and my gender currently is just that I'm happy that someone else is GMing other than me for once. <laughs> that's reasonable. That, that's the only valid gender. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Mom said it was my turn on the gender. <laughs> Oh, yeah, this is staying. Damn, <laughs> damn all of you. Uh, this is too good. Oh, Lord. Uh, uh, so we, we welcome uh, Dana this, I was going to say week, but we are not a weekly recording podcast. Uh, we welcome Dana this time from uh, the the incredible uh, Monster of the Week podcast, uh, Meddling with Monsters, as well as your, your credit and a few other things as well. You want to just do a quick... Uh, yeah, so let's see. I have acted in... Uh... A little bit of SCP archives and Margaret's Garden. I have a couple roles in that. And uh, I will also be in the show that's coming out. I forget the exact release date, but coming out in the next few months, uh, Twilight Over Midgard. Hell yeah. Oh, well, if they're releasing in the next couple of months, they'll, it will probably already be out by the time this it's comes out. It's quite possible. So, I forget um... <laughs> what the exact timeline is like. But yeah. Awesome. So look for that, everyone. Uh, look for all of those things. Uh, I, I can speak personally from from listening to all of meddling that's out as of today that it's a wonderful show and you're you're definitely missing out if you aren't listening to it. Uh, if you like if you like actual play podcasts at all or even audio dramas for that matter, you'll probably get a real good a real good experience with meddling with monsters. So hell yeah, <laughs> I'll I'll shell absolutely. It's absolutely worth shelling for. Uh, it's a great show. It's a good plug. You'd give, you'd be paid a shilling to shill. Yeah, I would. I would. You don't have to pay me a shilling to shill. I'll just shill. <laughs> well, I just said Netflix and shill. <laughs> Netflix and shill. Oof. Uh, I'll think about that one for a while. Um. Anyway, uh, now that we've got sort of our our basic introductions out of the way, what are we playing today? So I said earlier we're playing the watch. What is that? Uh. Well, uh, I took a few cuts at sort of putting together a quick synopsis of what this game is. And then I actually looked at like their original Kickstarter and they already did that for me. So I'm just going to read that off for you all because it's really uh, a good a good description of what this game is. So the watch is made by uh, Ash Crater. Uh, they use they, them pronouns. And they describe it as uh, a tabletop role-playing game set in a light fantasy setting known as the Clan Lands. It takes place during a dark and horrific war between the now united ten clans who live there and an invading force known only as the Shadow. The Shadow is a powerful and insidious enemy that is able to enter the minds of its opponents and slowly turn them to its side, twisting them into unnatural foes. For reasons unknown, the Shadow is able to more easily influence the minds of men and has turned a great deal of the clan soldiers against itself. With most of its fighting force crippled or worse, the clans have joined together and begun enlisting new warriors to defend their homes. Women and non-binary femme people who seem better able to resist the Shadow's hold have been recruited, trained, promoted, and formed into a new order, the Watch. Uh, they, they specifically mentioned that it has taken inspiration from several other PBTA games, Apocalypse World, of course, uh, but also chiefly uh, Night Witches, which is on my short list of games to play, but haven't gotten to it yet, so... Uh, be sure to, of course, check those games out as well if you want to see where some of the inspiration for this game came from. Um, on a very literal level, the game is this fantasy military drama filled with action and, of course, drama. Uh, specifically, it has mechanics for missions uh, and dealing with their aftermath, which is uh, really a core part of the gameplay. Uh, on a thematic level, the shadow is representative of toxic masculinity, and gender is a, a very important component 
uh, of the themes baked into the system. Uh, and it's something that I wanted us at the table, uh, we already sort of started this with our introductions, but it's something that I wanted us to talk about a little bit further, if everybody would be willing to have a quick chat about this. Uh, mostly just want to, uh, again, sort of give each one of you an opportunity to to talk about yourselves. We'll probably come around to me last. Um, and just explain a little bit about your experience of it and how you relate to it. And we'll use that sort of as the foundation as we move into discussing the system itself. Um, who would like to go first? I guess I can. Yeah, <laughs> go for it. Okay, so yeah. So as I mentioned before, non-binary woman, I stole my gender directly from uh, Rebecca Sugar, the creator of Steven Universe, who uh, some time ago came out as a non-binary woman and made me aware of the fact that, that that's a gender that I could have. Um, and it really resonated with me um, because like... I do feel like I'm a woman. Uh, I'm uh, assigned female at birth, but I I also very often feel disconnected from that in a way that like non-binary just makes so much sense to me. But but I can't. It's weird to say that I can't not be both. Um, but uh, and it's also weird to talk about this on on this podcast because like I'm very much not out to most people in the world. I mean, not that every single human being in the world has a right to know uh, every bit of my gender and sexuality story, et cetera, which I don't think I mentioned earlier, but pansexual, woo. Um, but, uh... I don't know, you said something about, like, tricks and Fruit Loops and stuff. Oh, so. Lord. Yeah, there's a meaning in there somewhere. <laughs> I did, oh, goodness, I did say those things. Um, but, uh, but, like, from from my earliest memories, I remember wishing that I had been given an androgynous name so that I could, like, pass as both a boy and a girl, just, you know, if I, if I wanted to, um, without having to change my name, which is ridiculous because, like... <laughs> still have my name you know i don't know but uh <laughs> and and i mean just just the, like there's so many things like that in in like even my earliest memories where it's like oh i'm not entirely just a girl and um i uh i so i currently use she her pronouns um and that that's always sort of felt the most comfortable i've um thought about trying out they them uh, or she they even just to kind of ease into it um but i, I don't know part of the, part of that is like you know the the terrifying ordeal of being known and all of that <laughs> and uh just how much it would scare me to like want to like to admit to myself that i want that and put that into the world and then have people disrespect it is so much scarier than just sticking with she her but uh in this game i'm planning on playing a character whose pronouns are they them and you know what is dungeons and dragons and other tabletop role playing games for if not gender exploration that's fair well spoken uh, who would like to go next? I can go next. So I uh, I am a transgender woman. I started transitioning about, uh, I guess, three years ago-ish, give or take. Um, and uh, I can echo a lot of the things Jell said about that in terms of kind of feeling a certain way about things from an early age. Um, fun side story. I grew up in a Christian cult, which was a whole fun experience in and of itself that uh, was probably for another time. But um, that definitely shaped a lot of how I was able to view the things that I was feeling and led to a lot of repression. And it really wasn't until I got into, I figured out I was bi in college. Um, 
And I did not figure out anything more gender related until I got into grad school. Um, and there, uh, I definitely started to question things more and more and more. And eventually I sort of came to the conclusion where I was like, okay, I am probably not a guy. Uh, but I tried to sort of pick, it's kind of funny that, um, gel cited the idea of a non-binary woman. Cause I was like, okay, I'm going to pick the thing, uh, that I think is not guy, but as closest to guy as I can get so that I don't have to move any further from that point than possible. Um, which for plenty of people, as, as Jell has kind of articulated, is a, is a perfectly valid choice. In my case, it was, it was avoidance. Um, and so I did that for a bit and I was like, no, I probably should take a few more steps at least. But I sort of told myself that it wasn't possible for all sorts of different reasons. And then as those reasons slowly got chipped away, I sort of found myself rationalizing uh, more and more ridiculous uh, ways around it to the point where I was like, okay, maybe I sort of have had this thought um, where I was like, maybe if I faked my own death and moved across the country, I could just start <laughs> over. It was like that scene from, we cited SpongeBob earlier. I was like that scene from SpongeBob <laughs> with Mrs. Puff where she's like, I'll have to, I'll have to move town, start like had a new name at a new boating school. And then she goes, not again. Um, (laughs) And so, I mean, I kind of had my, like, I had the moment of like, that is like, you are being so absurd and ridiculous. You just need to do the thing that you're trying to avoid. And so I did the thing. Um, There's certainly a lot more I could talk about there, but uh, yeah, I think it's been, the last three years have definitely been a lot better and a lot happier. And I've kind of arrived at a point where I am pretty comfortable with how I feel. I think the term woman and she, her pronouns and all that are very comfortable to me. I definitely, um, I sometimes joke that I feel like I am half non-binary as a way of just, uh, you know, skirting around that. But for the most part, woman and everything feels good. I just, I think more broadly find those terms and whole gender binary and everything so restrictive and silly that I don't fully relate to. Oh, I know. Of of those options. I hear that. Makes more sense. Yeah, exactly. So that's me. (laughs) Um, so, you know, Nico here, also Nick's, maybe something else? I don't know. Um, I'm also a trans woman, and I've, I've actually been transitioning for around a year and a half now, just over that, if I recall right. And boy, oh boy, um, a lot of the stuff you spoke to, I feel echoed in my own past as well, Dana. Um, so growing up, like, my mom raised me on her own for a number of years because bio dad immediately fucked off back to what was even then West Germany, um, pretty much as soon as I was born. And my mom was always super supportive of me and worked very hard to make sure that, you know, my upbringing was as good as possible given the situation. And I think it feels so weird to me and unfortunate, but also perhaps speaks a bit to the pervasive influence of the shadow, for example, about how my mom never spoke ill of LGBTQ queer folks or anything, but she didn't talk, like, she didn't know. She was a cis woman. She didn't talk about gender stuff either. I mean, it was the early 90s. And so I just kind of went with the flow from a very young age. I I literally wanted to be 
the princess in stories. And that thought never percolated from my brain down to my mouth. And this just kind of went on and on where I was just slowly absorbing the ambient toxicity around me. And so just wound up bottling all of this up, especially since I was like, my concept of being a good person was being someone who was effective at school and polite and quiet and blah, blah, blah. And so this culminated in a point when I was 11 or so, both my parents were at work. Uh, My dad is great. Uh, My mom met him when I was like four and best dad. Um, But they were both at work. I was just home alone, you know, puttering around on the computer and just kind of out of the blue, like a puppet on strings. I got up, walked over to the bathroom, stared at myself in the mirror. And by that point in time, you know, I'd never enjoyed all the traditional boy things. I had, I had already even then hair below my shoulders. And I just took a long stare at myself in the mirror. And I thought, I, I thought and said to myself, I really wish I could be a girl, but that's impossible. So I might as well put it out of mind. And tragically and unfortunately, I did an excellent job of repressing that memory for the next 15 years. Um, and then I met Angelica. And in just the radically loving and supportive way you've been with us together, uh, you know, slowly that same chisel came into play of like, oh, yeah, no, that thing that I just did was like, maybe not good. Huh, file that away. Until I finally was just like, one day, like, you know what? I'm just going to let walls down and see what happens. And I realized, wow, those thoughts were very not straight male. Interesting. And I percolated on that. And here I am now. Um, I mean, I feel also like she, her woman, these are things I identify with, particularly in direct opposition to anything masculine, really. Like, you know, if if non-toxic masculinity works great for some folks, awesome. I ain't about it at all. Uh, so yeah, a bit meandering, but that's kind of a summation of my own journey, as it were. Me or you? I said I was good. <coughs> I said I was going to go last. <laughs> okay. Can I, can I, Emma, before you start, can I yeah. just throw in real quickly uh, two things? One, uh, Nico, I remember when you were uh, first in our relationship starting to, you know, think about those things. Mm-hmm. I, I think at least some of it was shortly after I came out to you about being non-binary. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I remember I was so scared <laughs> to tell you <laughs> that I was non-binary, even though, you know, not even changing my pronouns or anything. But I was like, oh, my God, what is she going to think? But, you know, uh, obviously all of that has worked out fine now. But uh, uh, I mean, I also remember like seeing a lot of hints uh, in you that, you know, like that seems kind of trans. But, you know, I'm not I'm not in the business of pushing people into anything. Um, a part of me does <laughs> wish that you had, but like fully respectful of the fact that you didn't, you know. And, like, right. You know, <sighs> I feel like one big part of the queer experience is. If only. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And 
The the other thing I wanted to mention was uh, just Dana, your story uh, reminded me of a thought um, about like realizing things in college. Um, <laughs> so I realized I, 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 you know, now I use the term non-binary because that feels more right. But uh, when I first got into college, I went to art school for a year. And, you know, there's so many queer people in art school. And I realized there that I was at least, you know, somewhat genderqueer. And that was the term I, I, I used at the time. And like, I, I don't know how exactly, but like, I ended up being like, hmm, I'm pretty genderqueer. And then like, forgot for four years. <laughs> like, I, I I, just like, I was just like, hmm, gender stuff. And then filed it away. Like, literally did not think about my gender at all until a class in um, in college called Culture and Context, where we, we watched uh, a bunch of different videos on YouTube. One of them was specifically a slam poem by uh, this non-binary person. And their words touched me so deeply in that class that I just started like sobbing in the middle of the class. <laughs> and like yeah. the people at my table were like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah. Do you remember <laughs> the name of the poem? Um, shoot. I don't know. It's linked in, it's linked in our Discord somewhere. Yeah. We'll find it and we'll throw it in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, sorry. Uh, no, you're good. Yeah. Emma. This is a discussion. So, <laughs> um, I identify as a cis woman. I definitely, like, there's a lot of stuff that goes along with that. And there was definitely for a little while, like, especially as Jell is one of my oldest friends. And so as she has, like, been sort of understanding more about her own gender identity, then, and then as as Nico has understood as Nix has understood more about hers. Like I said, I'm experimenting with that one. It doesn't feel right, but it's more, uh, as I explained, it's more distant from my like actual dead name and therefore better. So we'll see if I stick with it. Okay. If I don't. You might not have found the right name yet, but we'll see. Anyway, um, for a while, I was kind of questioning whether or not, like, identifying as a woman had more to do with the ways in which I am reminded constantly of being a woman in our society and, like, you know, insert oppression and patriarchy and all of the ways in which life kind of sucks for <laughs> being a woman <laughs> here. here. Uh, and it... I I actually had to get over some shit uh, when you came out, Nico. Mm. Uh, because I had some understandings of what it meant to be a woman that made it a little bit harder at first to, like, accept you as a woman. And I feel really bad about that. I mean... It's really understandable, I think, because, I mean, I I feel like already all of our stories that have been shared have really touched upon just, again, how pervasive the toxicity of patriarchy is, because it tries to sort us all into 
binary categories, ones and zeros, and anything in between is unsupported, undefined, and under the gears that it calls progress, but in reality, crush, yeah, uh, produce errors. Error For codes. sure. So it wasn't something I really thought about much throughout my life. I pretty much always identified as a woman, as a girl, uh, more as a tomboy at certain points in my life. I also wanted to be like the princess, but I wanted to be like the warrior princess. <laughs> um, I wanted to be the helpless princess. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know, Emma, I just remember when we met, like one of the things we immediately had in common was that we loved playing with bugs. <laughs> yep. Was so not girly. Oh my god, I love to build bug <laughs> houses in elementary adorable. school. Oh, I love that. Uh, and that's a lot of that. Um, I started to understand my own sexuality better as I got older, and that's really more in the last few years as I understood that. Like I've always thought, like yeah, women are so beautiful, but like that's just you know aesthetically, right? Like. <laughs> Uh, being queer is an interesting situation. Truly, sure is. I suppose that brings it back to me. Uh, I didn't I'm, say a lot, but I don't have a lot to to contribute. I mean, as I guess, being one of the trans women at this table, you know, like queerness is not a competition, right? Um, yeah. and. We all are valid at this table, and all you listening, however you understand yourself, you are valid too, even though perhaps we all have that common experience of thinking that we're not, or feeling that we're not now and then. Just try and keep that idea in your heart. That's good. Uh, uh, where to, where to, I'm trying to figure out where I want to start this. Uh, so, 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 so. I guess I'll start off by saying uh, I identify most closely as being agender uh, and with a, a special sprinkle there of uh, of gender apathy. And I'll get to exactly like how that ties in at some point in this diatribe. Um, so my first exposure to really thinking about topics of gender was in high school. Uh, and I was taking uh, an English class and we had a unit that was about, uh, you know, sort of sex and gender and those sorts of topics. And I wrote a whole, who's greater than 10 pages, uh, essay on why, like, gender as a binary was sort of bullshit uh, and that we should just, like, abolish gender in general and just doesn't matter. Like, come on. Uh, isn't it clear? Isn't it obvious that it's all just bullshit? Uh, and I still sort of feel <laughs> that. But, like, my conclusion at the time was just, like, this is how it is and this is my perspective on it and I'm not at all going to, like, think about other people's perspectives on it. Nope. <laughs> Uh, and and that's what I felt. And that's what I thought. And uh, that that remained unchanged for at least five years uh, until sometime in college. I actually speaking of tying things back to gel, uh, <laughs> I was having a conversation uh, with her about some of this, uh, specifically talking about this essay. And uh, she brought up the very excellent point that from her perspective, gender mattered to her and and how like how her identity was at the time. And I do not remember exactly how you felt about yourself at the time, but. Uh, either way, like understanding those those labels and stuff mattered to you and that I should think about that. <laughs> and I was like, huh, so it matters to some people. Interesting. And instead of like posing the sec like the next question, which was, so 
maybe your original assumption had something to do with the fact that it didn't matter to you. No, I didn't, I didn't ask that question. I was just like, oh, okay, that's different. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, then I will amend my previous position being as I think gender is bullshit and that's how I feel about it. And other people feel differently and that's okay. Done. Uh, done. Not going to think about it again for another five years. Uh, and then uh, there was Trans Day of Visibility this year. And there was a, a huge conversation that was started in my workplace, which is really, really good. Um, hearing some of the, the trans folks uh, at, at my, my company uh, talk about their experiences. And then later that day, uh, going and traveling around with uh, uh, Nix and Jell a little bit uh, and hearing, uh, hearing them talk about it some. Uh, and basically, I was like, okay, uh, this is a, a time that is specifically allocated for thinking and talking about these topics. All right, brain, we'll open ourselves back up. Let's think about this one more time. Uh, and upon that further reflection, I came to the realization, I finally asked the next question. Uh, and and realized that, okay, well, what if my my opinion on this has less to do with how air quotes how things should be and more to do with my own perception and understanding of it? And if that is the case, what does that mean about my perception and understanding of it? Um, so I started doing a lot of research on like just terminology and stuff because I realized that I didn't have the vocabulary for describing anything I was thinking or feeling. And by the time I got to the end of that journey, I'd come across several terms that I sort of identified with and others that I didn't so much. Uh, and I finally settled mostly around uh, agender and gender apathetic. Uh, the, apath the apathy coming in uh, with, as it relates to pronouns and things, I, I just don't care about how I am perceived or addressed by others. Um, like, it just, it doesn't factor at all into my experience. Uh, so, like, he, she, they, any other pronouns you prefer, that's all fine with me. Uh, the huge caveat there being that, like, those do matter to other people. So like just because I am ambivalent to them doesn't mean all people are uh, at all <laughs> remotely that way. Uh, so, you know, nobody take my experience as being coloring, coloring how you treat other people. Right. Uh, but I usually go by he, him, cause that's how I'm most often perceived, but that's literally out of convenience and no other reason. Uh, it's just, if that's what people are going to use, I'm, I'm chill with that. That's fine. Uh, so that's where the apathy mostly comes in. Uh, and then the, the agender uh, portion, I've most sort of succinctly described for myself as uh, I do not relate to other people in terms of gender uh, in in any respect across the board. So, like, even though I have certain, like, as we talked about, the pervasiveness of the shadow, right? Like, there are still many behaviors, there's many cultural tidbits that I have absorbed one way or another, uh, positively, negatively, reflectively, or non. Um, I... I understand that gender exists and that though that has some bearing and weight, but if there's ever the expectation in a situation that either uh, as being male, for instance, or as being any other gender, that we suddenly share some sort of commonality, that we, we should have a relationship that we, we share based off of that, uh, that is not a sensation I've ever possessed. Uh, and so like most notably growing up, I would notice this like in situations where I was surrounded by uh, air quotes, like other men. Uh, and they'd be like, oh, you know, like we share this thing because we're all guys. Right. Uh, and sometimes I, you know, bucked up against that because it was just toxic. I knew that it was toxic. And like I've not jived with toxic masculinity for a long time. And I think that was actually it masked the, the whole agender thing. So I thought it was just like I had a problem with a lot of masculinity. Uh, 
And then upon deeper reflection, even in circumstances where like that was a totally like chill thing and it was just like this is a masculine, you know, trait or whatever, what have you. Uh, this is something that we then then as men all share. Uh, I it just no connection. And it's like, 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 that's wrong. Like, I don't <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about right now. Uh, and so, and that's happened like in situations with men, with women, with, and even with like non, like NB folks, uh, one way or another, I've just, it's not a way that I connect. It's not something that I particularly associate with myself. So I think that agender is the most accurate depiction for myself. And in that, uh, there's sort of like two camps and by sort of two camps, haha, there's not a binary here, guys, uh, <laughs> But there are several camps. Uh, one that I, I, I myself am fairly distant from. Distant from are folks who are a gender who identify as non-binary. Uh, so like, there's lots of a gender folks who like exclusively prefer they them because they feel like he, she, or any other pronouns are like just wrong, uh, okay. and they don't like them because they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, like I pad my experience with gender apathy and that I I don't care because like to me my gender experience is such that since I don't relate to it anyway. You can do whatever's cool for you. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I try to think like, is this just an avoidance technique on my part? But like, genuinely, I I don't care. Like, I, like in the past when I've been like, I've had different length hair and, and different like clothing styles as I've gone through my life, and there have been several occasions where I've been mistaken to be a woman, and like that did not bother me in the slightest. And like, I remember it, once we were sitting somewhere, and a like friend of your parents came up and said something about like. Uh, how are you two ladies doing? And you turned around and they were like, oh, I'm so sorry. And you're just kind of like, like, what, what, what are you sorry for? <laughs> uh, and, and that's actually I want to I want to b- jump off of that really quickly, because like when when because that happened to Nico and I a lot, because uh-huh, she's got such lot. long hair. And like, but the, the difference, I think, is what I'm hearing from you is yeah. that for you, it's meaningless. Whereas to Nico, when she was perceived as a woman and when she I, is, I perceived, it, was, it, was euphoric, it was euphoric, whereas yeah. for you, yeah. it's just it's just whatever. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, yeah. a very amusing thing. Half sorry to interrupt, but a very amusing. Thing. Whenever I speak, okay. everyone just turns to face the camera, like it's very intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Uh, sorry. It's like one of those POV memes, like you know, you're at a party and everyone just like turns to face you. I'm like, oh god, I just said hey, and it wasn't meant to be a big acknowledgement of anything. <laughs> oh. We'll try to. No, it's we'll fine. Try to not it's spook fine. You. I, I get it. I get it. It's just cute. I mean, you're basically you're at our table, just over there. Yeah, <laughs> that's a fair point. I will try to perceive it as such. <laughs> I think part of it is that you'll have to look up, so I sort of feel like I'm in this weird. Oh, <laughs> authoritative. Uh, this table is set up like a tribunal. <laughs> yeah, uh, you could lower the desk and yeah, kind of help. That's okay. I, I put it's it up okay. Higher, I just it's, I, it, I, I anyway, wasn't ready for it that fine. time. Um, <laughs> so, oh, goodness. Fair and valid. Yeah. I'm alive. Good. Anyway, you were saying. Um, oh, I mean, I, I was literally just acknowledging, um, you know, that, that experience of like being, I, I never had long hair before I started transitioning and I don't think I ever got perceived as, um, as feminine until I started transitioning. Although I have a lot of, it's yeah, it was very intriguing. As yeah. soon as I st- like something, I guess sort of to that effect is as soon as I started kind of like transitioning and um, 
not even like, like long before I really started trying to present femininely and certainly long before anyone would have probably looked at me and thought I was a woman. Um, there is a certain, I don't know what exactly it is, but there, I guess when you start either acting more femininely or slightly presenting more femininely or something, men just sort of feel like they can just come up and talk to you whenever, when I think they did. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And so like there was this time, it was super early on. I think I was just, just barely started. And I was just at like, uh, I was at a restaurant just eating my meatball sub alone at a table. And this guy comes up. He's like, oh, what you got there? What kind of sub is that? And, he start, and I'm just like, this didn't happen before. This is weird. What is going on? <laughs> uh, and there's just so many little things like that about getting perceived that way. So I do relate oh, yeah. to it in that Gosh. extent. It's very intriguing how... I'll, I'll just share this briefly. Another one of my favorite stories that I have is um, I got into an, an Uber ride... Uh, and I think I was dressed pretty androgynously. And the driver was like, what did he say? He said, oh, you got like a, you got like a really big neck there, don't you? And I, I, I hadn't said anything yet. So I responded, I responded in this voice. And then there was just like a, you could hear the gears in his brain catch. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, it's like a really elegant and stuff. <laughs> It was the Lord funniest Almighty. fucking thing because I could just hilarious. it was hilarious. <laughs> he got big. He was trying <laughs> so hard. Well, yeah, like you could, like he just. It was so amusing because he just the stopped moment. being able to understand how to perceive the situation. So yeah, yeah. It was, it's funny. This, this, oh my goodness! This all suddenly bringing. Two flashbacks to me. One, the first time I was like catcalled ever, I was literally just walking in a parking lot. And this other dude just calls out from like two and a half rows down, hey woman. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not dressed like seductively. I just am wearing a dress and have long hair. And I just look at him and he waves and I kind of weakly wave back. And then he fucking leaves. And it's like, what was the point of that interaction? And I, I talked to Joe later and it's like, I think I was just catcalled for the first time. And and I probably like, said something like, welcome to being a woman. Yeah. <laughs> the laziest catcall. Exactly. It's like literally just acknowledging your gender. <laughs> like, that's great. Yeah, like, I was like, I feel like it's, you know, weird euphoria from being clearly recognized as femme, but like, what was the point? <laughs> I remember the first time I had an experience kind of like that, although it was it was different because um, I was on an I was on an airplane. I was flying, um, which is already a fun experience when you're trans. But that's another story. Um, I was flying, and uh, it was me and this other guy. And the middle seat was empty. And the entire flight, neither of us said a word to each other. And we get to the end of the flight as we are descending, and I see that he's put his phone in the in the middle seat between us, and it's face up. And I. I don't even think much of it. Um, I figured he's just getting his stuff down. And then I look and his phone has his notes app open and he's written what I presume to be his number in it. And, (laughs) and I just, I look back at him and he looks back at me. Neither of us say anything. Then I look down and he just slowly grabs the phone and takes it back. And in addition to just the horrifying, like awkwardness of like, okay, I'm going to get off this plane 
I thank God have the aisle seat. So I am going to walk out and I'm just going to not look back and it's all going to be good. (laughs) But I had this thought of like, and I still have this thought that was relatively early in my transition, but I still have this thought sometimes when guys do that, where I'm like, I don't know what you see when you look at me. And I don't know how potentially disappointed or upset or angry you might be if you find out it's not what you think. Because there's so many combinations uh-huh. to that that could go... There's very few that go well for me in that scenario. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's very no, sobering. Yeah. Uh, I... I hesitate, like, I, I dread drawing this conversation to a close because there's so much to talk about around oh, these, sure. these topics and, and to gather from people's experiences. Uh, but that's, un- unfortunately, that's a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although I'm, I'm very glad, uh, sort of, this will be a, a gentle segue uh, back to talking about the watch some, but I'm really glad that these sorts of conversations can be driven by TTRPGs. Yeah. Fuck like, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. That, that like, ah oh man, because like yeah, it's not like my formal education, barring that one chat in that one high school class. This is not something that a lot of people get exposure to through, air quotes, like normal living. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, sorry, not to interrupt, but like mm-hmm. it—that's what's so frustrating to me about all of our stories. I mean, I guess. Well, even 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 you, because like uh, I'm gesturing to Emma, um, because like even if you come out of gender exploration realizing that you're completely cis, that's it's still a useful thing to to go through, and it's so frustrating to me in every queer person's story that I've ever met that like they because they didn't have the vocabulary because they didn't have the exposure. Mm-hmm. Because they had no idea that there are options beyond boy and girl, whatever your fucking genitalia is, what everyone treats you as. There are options beyond that because there's no there's no exposure in education in 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 most people's like growing up with their parents. There's there's it's not normal and it should be it should be normal to expose young kids to the idea of queerness so that they can do their gender exploration at in a time when they're figuring themselves out rather than years later when they mm-hmm. have to like not only figure out all of this gender stuff but also unfold so much trauma from having it like be one repressed due to a lot of cultural bullshit but two also like not even begun to be unfolded because of that complete and total lack of exposure to even the barest concepts of queerness. Yeah. If I had known the word trans woman when I was a kid, I could have started transitioning at age six, 20 years earlier than I did in this timeline. And (sighs) that version of me is a lot happier and a lot less burdened. That's for sure. Similarly, like, I put off kind of understanding that I was bisexual and I'm not even entirely sure still if I I've been using that label throughout this but I don't know when we were talking the other day like stuff about being pansexual also kind of feels like it might fit better but either way like I got married at we were 19 circa yeah we were 20 soon after but yeah um And, like, David identifies as a man most of the time. Uh, 
or at least did at the time. Um, and so, like, it basically didn't matter to me. I, I put it out as just sort of like, it doesn't matter because I'm in this relationship. It doesn't matter if I'm straight or if I'm bi or if I'm pan or, or any of that because, like, I'm in this relationship and I'm not going anywhere in it. Uh, but, like, it does matter to my own understanding of myself beyond that. Mm-hmm. And, and not to mention the fact that like doing j- like a- any sort of exploration into queerness, uh, gender, sexuality, whatever, even if you come out of it completely cisgender and heterosexual, it will still help you have empathy for people who are like, oh, I totally am queer. And I don't know, just uh, I-, I feel like that empathy is so important. And uh, I could go on a freaking tirade and I basically already have. So I will stop now. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Like you said, let's draw this conversation. Well, well no, uh, I mean, again, branching off of that, uh, pulling us back, I should say, less branching off. We, we're, t- we branched off quite <laughs> a bit. Cut those branches just uh, a little the bit. whole last tree at this point. Yeah, let's, <laughs> yes. let's, uh, like gr- grift or graft the branch back into the main line. Uh, grift it. <laughs> grift it. Yeah. No. No, let's graft, please. Uh, <laughs> uh, Speaking of of empathy and empathy building, uh, and again, so I what I did do a lot of growing up was read. I read and I read and I read and I read and I read. I read so much. I like there was huge swaths of my life where I averaged five or more books a week, um, like full novels or whether they be fiction or nonfiction, and that was just like what I did. Uh, and the biggest thing to me about why I love uh, fiction, fictional literature so much is how much you can learn about empathy from from other stories. Oh, hell yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think for me, as I eventually learned about TTRPGs and started playing them, uh, that's one of the things that I love the most. Uh, probably the thing that I love the most about them uh, is the ability to tell tell stories and understand more about those characters uh, and also the players who play them sometimes uh, there's there's a there's a building of empathy in those in the playing in the relationships um and really pulling us all the way back to to where we're going next uh, the watch uh, is definitely a game that is is built to allow for some of that empathetic storytelling particularly as it relates to these these characters who live in a world of great conflict um and you know we've it it personifies uh or or i guess what's a better word for the storififies show? storififies it it, <laughs> it plotifies hmm. uh it manifests uh uh a- allegorify yeah allegorify encodes anyway the, the shadow yeah. is representative of of course toxic masculinity but like it it makes that very physical and very real and very understandable uh, by by simplifying it down to this force uh, so that its effects are more clear and more known than perhaps things in our world where it's a lot more uh, indirect, right? There's lots of things that are consequences of that aren't directly... You, you can tie back, but it is an effort to get there. Yeah. Uh, whereas the shadow is like, corrupted by the shadow is just a thing in this world, right? So right. a lot more understandable to experience uh possession in a fictional context than to walk through 
how because some candidates' names were listed on their applications, femme names were given less pay and so yeah. on and so forth. Uh, right. And, and just just to sort of uh, blur some thoughts into that thought. Um, <laughs> God, I words. We're going to get somewhere <laughs> with this episode eventually. <laughs> uh, I swear. So, you know, in the real world, uh, so much of how toxic masculinity and homophobia and transphobia gets filtered into our lives is through microaggressions. And it's it's harder to pin down like every little thing that is toxic because so often it's things that are so small that like, you know, when one person does a microaggression to you, they feel like it's nothing. But, you know, to a person who experiences microaggressions, it builds and builds and builds. A million yeah. paper cuts will saw a tree. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so the watch is a world where those, those things exist, but instead have been adapted to being big, big cuts, uh, (laughs) with real swords, uh, and spears and, and everything else you can imagine, I'm sure. Uh, we're going to get into some world building eventually with this. Uh, but first, uh, let's talk a little bit about how this game operates. Uh, so the watch is a, uh, powered by the apocalypse game and it inherits, uh, several commonalities from, from apocalypse world. Uh, one such example is you you roll for moves, uh, and that roll is done with two die six, uh, and those moves uh, are triggered by players narrating their action, and those rolls determining the outcome are often modified by stats. So a lot of the core of the game is is very directly inherited. Um, in the case of the watch, uh, we have four main stats. Uh, those are cunning, which relates to your intellect, your smarts, or shrewdness. Uh, there is luck covering your mystique or fortune, your natural charm and looks. Uh, And then there's training reflecting your combat ability, discipline, toughness, or experience in the field. And finally, valor, your courage, boldness, or leadership. Um, And those have a maximum range of plus three to minus three. So if you have a move or something and you've already boosted your stat uh, up to plus three and you have a move that might, you know, add another plus one to it, Sorry, you don't get that. It caps out at three. And likewise, for your benefit, it caps out at negative three as well. (laughs) Uh, If for whatever reason, you're very bad at a thing. Um, So those are the basic stats for this game. Uh, Additionally to stats, uh, characters also uh, have experience. Uh, Again, something similar to Apocalypse World. There's ways to gain experience. However, uh, there is a duality with experience in the watch. You have both experience, which is like the positive accumulation of you know, completing missions, uh, gaining camaraderie with folks. It's a it's a show of your growth uh, as opposed to your burnout. And burnout does have a representation uh, in the watch since so much of this game is surrounding this this grand military conflict. Uh, hey, that's really hard on the human psyche. Uh, and so there is a another negative experience track called Jaded. Uh, and these two, uh, it's not negative in the sense that earning jaded uh, then reduces your experience. And instead, they're like two side by side tracks and you can accumulate along both of them and even gain benefits from both of them. The more jaded you become, you unlock uh, the ability to add jaded moves to your playbook, which gives you very powerful, very potent moves uh, at the risk of the further you go down the jaded track. Uh, eventually, you have to take the. Uh, the final jaded move, which is called the tipping point. Uh, And that tipping point moves activation that trigger uh, results in either desertion, death, or falling falling prey to the shadow's wiles. Uh, So it is, it's a dangerous route to go, but you do gain power down that route as well. It's a little bit like putting on a crown of the void in Brittlewood 
Brindlewood yeah, Bay. Yeah, it's a little bit like which that. Which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to anybody at the table right now. <laughs> but, but it makes sense to you, listener, if you listen to our Brindlewood Bay arc, which airs in between these. <laughs> oh, yes. Now available where you find podcasts. <laughs> Uh, just just click on the episode before this one and it should be yeah yeah <laughs> uh, we we although actually hilariously in that game i don't think there's any crowns of the void that are put on we don't put on any crowns we, of the void but we do explain it yeah we do explain it though anyway but, but no that is a good example of another case within pbta where there is such a thing as sort of a a less positive uh experience uh that you can gain as well mm-hmm. uh, and i think that that is a. Uh, what I really like about the watch is having that that concept of both experience and jaded uh, means that no matter how a mission goes, you come out of it having gained something. Uh, and so as you move through the game, uh, you you accumulate these experiences, which then can shape how your character grows, whether that be in a positive or, or a more negative uh, way. Uh, and either way, you do grow, though. You do change uh, by by playing um, another duality that leans into this a little bit uh, are the resources of camaraderie and weariness. Uh, if you remember it all from our uh, Undying game, that game focused really heavily on resources since it was diceless. Um, but there are, are also uh, this concept of uh, resources in the watch. Uh, and camaraderie, uh, as it sort of sounds, is a measure of your deepening ties to NPCs or PCs. Uh, and one of the cool things about camaraderie is as you you gain it with people, if you gain over three counts of camaraderie with someone, uh, any camaraderie you gain beyond that is counted as experience. So it's a really great way to to build experience is if you develop deep and meaningful relationships with characters, then if you continue down those routes, you can build up your positive growth, right? That's a, a way to to grow your character in that way. Um, on the, the flip side, uh, you have the more negative resource of weariness. Uh, and you can sort of think of weariness as being the short-term version of jaded. Jaded is like how your character, as a as a cumulative effect of being part of this conflict, for, of seeing their comrades die, of of taking lives themselves, uh, jaded is how they grow more and more uh, throughout the course of the conflict uh, in that way. Uh, weariness is more of a short-term, immediately things happen that make you weary. Um, and it's a negative resource reflecting just how close everything is to being too much for you. Um, and when you've gained plus four weary, uh, it will automatically trigger surrender to weariness, which is one of uh, uh, one of the moves. Uh, and that eliminates your weary at the risk of also removing all of your camaraderie with some of your allies. Um, so balancing your weariness and your camaraderie can be really important uh, because weariness can affect very negatively your camaraderie. Uh, as when you surrender to weariness, you run the risk of blowing up, of of either you know, losing your top or just shutting down in a way that that withdraws from and, and damages your relationships with people you care about. You can also, uh, talking about camaraderie uh, once more before we move on to some of the other cool things about the watch, uh, you can also spend some of your camaraderie instead of hoarding it in order to gain experience. You can spend your camaraderie to gain a boost through the move Need a, need a Hand. Uh, which will then grant you a, a plus one to some of your roles. And that, again, we'll talk about in a little bit more detail when we actually get to talking about moves. But those resources, camaraderie and weariness, uh, and then you know the concepts of experience and jaded, uh, they all work together uh, to really set the grittier tone that the watch has. Uh, and I think that the, me- the mechanics feed so beautifully into what the game is trying to get you to experience, right? Mm-hmm. You are... You're not only, you know, these powerful adventurers and and warriors who are 
are defending your homeland against this huge existential threat. But also conflict, like war is hell. Yeah. Uh, and doing that, even even if it is for all the right reasons, is still damaging and difficult. And so trying to find the right balance of that, of of growing through that hardship and coming out of that with as, as I guess, as few scars as you can manage, maybe, um, that's something that the watch gives you the opportunity to experience. I think that's really cool. So uh, in line with this uh, sort of grittier tone that the watch has, uh, harm, uh, it's weird to think of because I feel like a harm in apocalypse world is is pretty strong. Uh, you know, like you, you can take a couple slots of it early on that are sort of free, but then the deeper you get, like you you teeter on the brink of death there towards the end without help. I think I think it's a pretty neat progression. Uh, that progression is a lot shorter in the watch. Uh, in the watch, you have three slots of harm, uh, and there, there are three stages. Uh, they are hurting, wounded, and critical. Yikes! Um, and things get bad if you make it all the way to critical. Um, and, and there's even the capability in the game of you taking significant harm, where instead of just taking one harm that time, you take two slots of it. Oof! Uh, and it can it can jump you to a dangerous state real fast. Uh, when you when a, when a PC specifically uh, when they hit critical. And for every harm you hit after that, because you can continue to stay alive after that, you trigger the move, suffer great harm, which can lead to the loss of advancements, uh, loss of stats permanently, and even like maiming the character. Uh, and if you roll really poorly, uh, then you're probably going to be going out in a blaze of glory. Uh, so you don't want to be in critical, at least not for very long. Um, things can can really hurt your character pretty fast. And I think that... Again, all of the way the the moves and the the different mechanics stack up in the watch really frame that this is more of a I don't want to use the word dark, um, but a more heavy he- heavy is good. It's 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 a heavier story that the watch tells. Um, so if you're considering playing it, um, be aware of that. Uh, know that going in, uh, and if you're excited for that, like I am, uh, that that there's a system that really supports some of these things, then hey, get hype and buy the game, and it's you know we'll have a link to it in the description or whatever. Um, but it's it is a game where that is front and center to the very mechanics of the system, so you're not gonna really get around that unless you hack the game pretty severely. So just be aware of that. Uh, additionally, we've gotten past the basics. We've explained some of the, the core guts. Uh, let's talk about moves some. Um, there are a lot of moves to this game. And of course, with a, with any PBTA game, the moves are sort of what really gives character to how the, the gameplay unfolds. And in the watch, that's no different. Uh, we've already actually talked about a couple uh, of some of the special moves that come with uh, the watch. There are, of course, the basic moves, which we'll talk about in a minute. There's also, of course, playbook moves. Again, we'll talk about those in a minute. Um, but there are also jaded specific moves that you can gain through advancing down that track. There are mission moves, uh, which happen every session uh, as as a mission is usually what kicks off the action. Uh, and then there are also separate hardship moves. So we've already talked about uh, one of the hardship moves earlier. That was surrender to your weariness. Uh, additionally, there are two more. One is uh, deliver a eulogy, uh, which should a, a NPC or PC uh, meet their end in the watch, uh, you have the option as as a player to deliver a eulogy for that character uh, during the the post-mission time. And should you do that, you gain experience for doing that. Um, so that's an example of a hardship move. 
And then there's also Resist the Shadow, uh, which we will inevitably be using in the course of the game. Uh, and Resist the Shadow uh, is a move that is triggered by your character engaging in any sort of toxic behavior, particularly uh, adhering to harmful ideas about interpersonal behavior uh, and or also uh, actively seeking to harm another person in some fashion. Uh, so when you engage in that, you you must resist the the desires of the shadow and how it would like to influence you in, in that. Uh, and if that goes well for you, then you understand that the shadow was trying to to touch you and and what it wanted from you. And if you roll poorly in that, uh, then you lose control of your character temporarily and they do what the shadow wants. Um, oh, boy. So Indeed. it's not good. high stakes. No. Yeah. Um, so just be cognizant of that hardship move. Again, that's a there. I think there there are a list of moves that you could put together that like a single move that really defines a game like for Brindlewood Bay. I think that's pretty obviously theorize where like you pull together all the clues you've seen and, and you make a decision on what's happened and that goes either well or poorly. Um, in the case of the watch, I feel like resist the shadow is that move for the watch where it is so central to what the game is about. Um, and we'll, we'll definitely see some rolls of that when we get to playing. So <laughs> listener, you've been warned. <laughs> um, so in addition to that, uh, uh, addition to the hardship moves, uh, there are also your basic moves and we'll review those again at a very high level. There are a ton, there's a ton of stuff to this game. And if I were to go over everything in excruciating detail, a, that would make this quite boring. <laughs> uh, and B, uh, we would, this would be three hours long. <laughs> and I'm trying to not make it that long for for all of your sakes. Um, so within the basic moves, uh, there are five active ones. Uh, the first of those is blow off steam. So we mentioned earlier that you can accumulate weary. Uh, in your downtime after a mission, you can do something to blow off some steam. You know, let, let yourself loose a little bit. And when you do that, uh, you have options like reducing your weary. You can gain camaraderie with someone through the course of that action. Uh, and other things like that. So that's one of the basic moves you'll see a lot in the game. I'm, I'm sure we'll see some of that in the course of our play. Uh, so uh, another one of our active moves is to let the shadow in. Uh, this is... I'm trying to think of a good analog from one of the games either we've played before or that a lot of people might be familiar with. Um, uh, let in the maelstrom? Yeah. Yeah, this is yeah. like just rolling straight weird in Apocalypse World. Uh, letting the shadow in is when you you tap in to the shadow itself... You expose yourself to it uh, in order to gain hidden knowledge or insights. Uh, and as you might imagine, if that goes poorly, <laughs> you have contacted the shadow uh, and sort of told it what you want, uh, what you want to know. Uh, and so that can have direct and immediate consequences for you at, of course, the potential benefit of better understanding your enemy and and finding out information that otherwise you might not be able to, to get. Um, so letting the shadow in is uh, another, I would say, pretty significant move that that the watch makes very good use of in its in its overall structure. What it's what it's trying to get you to do. Sometimes the shadow tries to pull you into the benefits. It whispers into your ear. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. the shadow is can be as alluring as it is dangerous, uh, because there are things that you know power and. <laughs> not caring about other people can give us. Uh, and sometimes those things are attractive. Um, it's in a similar way to, but obviously differently. That's a poor way of describing that. Uh, 
Same, same, but different. Yes, same, same, but different for Let the Shadow In. Uh, there's Look Beyond. And this is this is different because with Let the Shadow In, uh, I mean, A, you're, you're rolling... Uh, we roll with the number of jaded moves you've earned. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Right? Oh, that's so juicy. Right? Right? That's so good. Uh, so, yeah, basically, however jaded you've become will boost your your Let the Shadow In roll. God, that's good. Whereas Look Beyond uh, is luck? Uh, it's cunning. 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 Because it, it, think of Look Beyond more as you plying your your mind's eye to the situation and analyzing it. Um, Look Beyond is like understanding below the sur- the surface what's going on. This is actually most similar to uh, Read a Bad Situation um, or... Uh, or Rolling Insight. It's yeah, big Yeah, or Rolling time. Insight, yeah. <laughs> uh, Look Beyond is like, I'm, I'm going to... Regarding the situation, I'd like to think about it a little bit more. And uh, MC, if I roll well, tell me about this situation a little bit more. Tell me an answer, perhaps, to this specific question. Uh, and I have to answer honestly. Computer, so, analyze. <laughs> computer, analyze. Uh, oh, man, that'd be, that'd be a great move for a... Sci-fi. Yeah. Computer, analyze. That'd be so good. I like that. All right, I'll add that to my list of games to make. Uh, <laughs> you have a list of games you're going I to make? Do. You do. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> one day uh anyway uh there is opening up to someone uh which is where you i feel like this one just does what it says on the tin right uh you expose something uh about yourself you lower your your guard you you be vulnerable with them uh and in doing so you roll and you can gain camaraderie uh you can potentially lower weary also doing this uh and you might learn more about them or gain plus one forward uh, or or you can get them to promise you something. So open up to someone is a great way, a very intentional move to build rapport between between characters. These ones I'm just going through because the book does a really good job of explaining these. So uh, the next one that's an active one is provoking someone. Um, <laughs> as I just said, for for opening up with someone, uh, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, if you are trying to get a rise out of someone, trying to get them to act in a way that they otherwise wouldn't, uh, then you roll to provoke. And that, of course, can can lead to them doing that or maybe not. And you you uh, having a poor interaction, we'll say, with them uh, should that occur. In addition to the active ones, there are also three reactive basic moves. So uh, in the reactive moves, we have need a hand, prevent bloodshed. And rely on your training. You need a hand we've talked about a little bit earlier, uh, where you can spend some of your camaraderie and roll, and you can gain a boost either from a PC or NPC ally uh, in order to to help your roll out a little bit if that didn't go well for you. In the reactive uh, moves, we've we've talked, of course, now about need a hand. There's also prevent bloodshed and rely on your training, which certainly have pages, right? Right. So uh, to prevent bloodshed, uh, you you roll on your training. Uh, and you disarm the situation, but at some cost to yourself. Um, so preventing bloodshed basically puts you in between whatever the threat is uh, and whoever you're trying to to aid. Relying on your training is attempting to overcome some kind of obstacle using your field experience. Um, it's it's a very broad catch-all. Uh, I think a little bit like doing something under fire, I would say. And that one you're rolling training? Yes, you are rolling your your training. Okay. 
And yep, you're you're in a dangerous situation, and you choose to engage in a risky course of action. Mm. So it's it's basically the the catch all for do it do it under fire. Rolling Rely on hard. your training. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um. So that covers all of our basic moves. Um. There's also mission moves, uh, which are really interesting because so the mission phase of the game. This is uh, exposing a, a pretty unique thing about how the watch operates. Um. The mission phase of the game is separate from the times when you can use your basic moves. You cannot use your basic moves at all during a mission. Uh, you only have access to the mission moves um, because uh, missions are they happen in scene and they they of course happen in character, um, but they're it's a little bit like Undying uh, for anyone who's listened to the podcast and, and listened to our Undying game. Uh, they have this concept of nightly play versus. Uh, a more generational play, which has a name, and I can't put my finger on it right now. Uh, but the difference is, like, they have nightly play, which is very in the moment, in the character, like, real time, this is what's happening. And then they have the... Uh, zoom the camera out a little bit. Downtime? Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, downtime play, uh, which is, you know, zoom the camera out and talk about what happens across years. And you have separate moves that you can use in either of these times. Similarly, mission is like you're zooming out a little bit. Uh, and the function of play is a little bit different because as we talked about with several of the moves we've discussed so far, they can really only happen when you're outside of a combat encounter, right? Like opening up to someone and like, uh, you know, blown off steam. Th- these are these are things you do outside of that, you know, military maneuver. It's really fascinating to have a game where it kind of breezes over what would be considered yeah. in a lot of games to be the game. I was thinking that's yeah. right. Um, which is the the combat and the like the the battle part coming from, you know, D D, which started off as a war game, uh and coming to this like much more narrative focus to see yeah. like your basic moves happen in downtime. When you are out of those like very martial moments, yeah, um, that's that's really interesting, and it kind of shows where the focus of the game is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, what it always what it makes me think of when I was first reading it is like if you actually you know p- put on your 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 investigative cap and you think about any like good films that are about war, um, either films or shows. Most of it isn't the conflict. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it's mostly dealing with the drama and the the fallout of what just happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and like very recently, uh, you know, or end of last year, Emma and I saw 1917, which is a wonderful film. Uh, very, very hard to watch. What I appreciate so much about it is that it does not at all glorify war. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the, in the slightest. The opposite. Uh, and in in its investigation of that overwhelmingly the film is is it is tense because conflict could be around every corner but most of them it is not Mm. um and it is it is trying to survive through that experience and the watch is is that um and it is like trying to forge bonds and relationships in the midst of that conflict and hey it makes for good drama (laughs) and very fitting to the themes of it it's less about achieving the objective or winning that domination over a foe and more, hey, let's make it out alive. Yeah. Let's, or not. <laughs> let's let's try to win the day. And if not, let's make it out alive. Let's survive to the next yes. one. Uh, I have a question. Yeah. 
Um, so, so just, just to clarify, um, when you're on a mission, there's just the mission moves. You yes. don't use the reactive moves at all, even. That is a great. I, I don't know. Question. They look. They look like they could be useful in missions. They look that. I mean, that's where that seems like it would make the most so, sense. Yes. Re, uh, so react well, with right. the exception of need a hand. That's what it says in the book. First paragraph of mission moves. Uh, oh. Uh, mission moves are the moves that are rolled when going on missions, with the exception of need a hand. The basic moves and the playbook moves may not be used during missions unless explicitly specified otherwise. Hmm. All right. So so, um. Prevent bloodshed and rely yeah. on your training would only be used outside of an actual mission. Yes, that's interesting. Okay, yeah, uh, and that's because, uh, as as is often the case in war, uh, conflict might come to you when you are not expecting it. Right, it feels like the complications that are sprinkled into mission results yes. are the engine of this game. Absolutely, mm. uh, because completely central to this game is the idea that no plan will go correctly. Precisely. <laughs> yeah. It won't. It won't happen. Um, and so, like the the results that come out of those conflicts are what drive the the emotional conflicts and sometimes the literal ones that happen in those downtime times. So uh, during a mission, you have access to need a hand uh, and no other basic or or playbook moves unless they specifically specify otherwise. Uh, instead, you have at your disposal the four mission moves uh, and those are watch their backs navigate or strategize recon or lookout and take point uh, and rather than dig into all the specifics with each of those know that there are moves that are associated with missions and those are them uh, all of those names i think do a good job enough of explaining the gist of how those work uh, and i will leave you all knowing that there are a lot of moving pieces to the watch and when we're actually playing this game Anytime a move is triggered, we will describe it exactly as the book details and deal with whatever the consequences of the die may be. Um, but there are separate moves that you have access to during missions, uh, which are a core part of play. Every session will start with one of those unless you happen to end the last one in the middle of one or without having completed some of your downtime you know, actions and stuff. Um, but otherwise... It'll be a mission, and then you'll deal with the consequences of it. An important thing to take out of uh, our discussion on missions, though, is that you, in the course of going through a mission, uh, A, whenever you start one, you immediately take one jaded uh, just for starting the mission at all. You can, you can leave it with more jaded, depending on what happens during the mission. Uh, and also, during the mission, you gain consequences, uh, which are what happened during the mission and and what went wrong and uh, what followed you back home, maybe. Uh, those sorts of things. Uh, so consequences are what help drive the action outside of missions themselves. Uh, but they're sort of their own self-contained part of the game. And then the rest of the game is, you know, OK, well, what happens after that? Right. Um, and so that's uh, mission moves and a brief, brief overview of those. Uh, and then I'm also just going to really, really gloss over stuff that the MC has to worry about. So, oh, one usually at the beginning of this, whenever I get a new title, I, I read it off at the beginning. Uh, while I am technically master of ceremonies for this, uh, it also refers to the MC for this as being mistress of ceremonies. So I'm also the mistress of ceremonies. I can add that to my cap of the multiple titles that I've taken yeah. through the course of PBTA games. Excellent. I just want Excellent. your like Twitter handle to just be like... <laughs> if I ever make a personal Twitter, then it'll just be like, yeah, like, uh, mistress of ceremonies, master of ceremonies, the keeper, keeper uh, like uh, game master, dungeon, dungeon master. master. You're not gonna mm -hmm. go with dungeon uh, mistress. 
I haven't heard that one used for, for D&D. I could do I that. I that one. Well, here's the thing. Both Dungeon Master and Dungeon Mistress give me weird vibes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, yes. I, That's no matter how you think about that, it's not good. Yeah. I mean, or rather, I, I should say, I should say, it's somebody's thing. Somebody <laughs> likes that. Somebody likes that a lot. Yeah, you might attract the wrong audience if you call yourself a Dungeon Mistress. Yeah. So, uh, in addition to the types of moves we've already discussed... Uh, there's also MC moves, uh, which are, of course, what I'm capable of doing as your mistress of ceremonies. Uh, so <laughs> she'll destroy <laughs> us all. That's right. But but you want me to. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> wait, sorry. Other kind of mistress of ceremonies. Sorry. Oh. Uh, anyway, so uh, here are some of the moves that I have available to me. Uh, I can put someone on the spot. Where uh, I can make things particularly difficult to one of you in a particular circumstance. Uh, I can take something away from you. I can bring clan politics into it. That'll be fun once we've established how the clans are and what their relationships are with each other. Uh, I can harm one or many of you. Uh, of course, you know, I can make varying stages of hard moves. So I'm not just going to be like, oh, you saw someone. Uh, all of you take fall damage. You die. It's fine. <laughs> uh, that won't happen. Um, I can show the shadow's reach. Uh, I really like this one because the shadow is supposed to feel pervasive, uh, even in spaces that you think you're safe in. So showing the shadow's reach is something that is uh, going to be a part of my kit that, especially given if you've listened to our Ghost Lines game, I like to make things a little spooky sometimes. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what you mean. From time to time. It's so fun. Uh, yeah. and, and showing the shadow's reach will definitely be something that I will employ. Uh, I can tempt someone with power. Uh, which I already, knowing what I do, you, listener, you aren't there yet. You haven't heard these beautiful characters that everyone has created, but I already see some some opportunities at my fingertips for that. Um, <laughs> I can use words instead of spears, uh, which I really like this being explicitly made into an MC move because I think it's it's really easy if you're in a war setting to rely like, oh, I need to hurt my players uh, in order to like advance the plot. Obviously, you don't just like hurt people for fun. Unless you do, mm. maybe rethink that. Uh, <laughs> But using words instead of spears is reminding you that there are other ways to create conflict and to to generate obstacles for your players to overcome. Um, I can also reveal a new piece of the puzzle, which it's another one that I sort of like that they codify because like everything is an upheaval. Uh, and sometimes the best thing to do as the MC is, you know, make something appear. That, sprinkle some breadcrumbs. Sprinkle some breadcrumbs. You got it. <gasps> Bread. Um, I will say, as we, as we get to that one in particular, uh, this is a good opportunity to re remind the audience that as the MC, whenever one of you trigger a move, I will usually let you know like what move you've triggered and what you need to roll about it. But since there's no roles or anything associated with the MC moves generally, um, I won't ever say the names of these. I'm just going to do them. Mm -hmm. okay. uh -huh. uh, whenever I have a move. So in all the previous games that we've, we've run, I've had moves at my disposal, and I don't think I've ever, ever pointed out when I've used one of my moves unless it was like when I needed to roll for people's harm in a yeah, you've, world. Yeah, you've said something like, I'm going to make a hard move here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I'll, usually, I'll usually say when I'm doing something. Yes. Um, but but I won't tell you what I'm doing. Uh, or rather, I won't tell you what move I'm using, rather what I'm doing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, in this overview, yeah. are triggers to MC moves also part of this overview, or is that uh, so something to nothing, discover? Nothing triggers MC moves. Mm. Uh, so whenever you make moves, uh, I usually, as a consequence, if those go poorly... Uh, I get the option of making a move. I see. Gotcha. Um, or if there's a lull, I basically have 
carte blanche ability to make a move. Cool. Um, so yeah. just to advance things, keep things moving along. But yeah. So yeah, the, one of the unique things about MC moves is they're they're really less like moves and more like guidelines. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they're more uh, they're more an expression to you, the players, of what I'm capable of, what you can expect from this story. Um, so one is uh, give you an opportunity uh, with or without a cost. Mm. Um, one is reveal a secret to the wrong people. Oh. So I know your secrets and sometimes other people might learn them too. Um, I can uh, make them mark weary or surrender to weariness. This is an important one, actually. So we mentioned earlier that surrender to weariness triggers automatically when you get to four weary. Mm-hmm. I can at any point, if the narrative makes sense for it, require that you roll surrender to weary then. Oh. Um, and so the nice thing about that is that will clear your weary. Uh, the bad thing about that is if you roll, and this is a weird one because it's opposite. If you roll well, uh, that is bad for you oh, because okay. surrender to weary, the better you roll, the worse the outcome is. Interesting. Um, as far as consequences to your relationships with people. Hmm. Um, so I can, I can basically spring that on you early if the narrative makes sense. Okay. Um, and then, uh, <laughs> I, I like this, uh, after every move, ask the question, what do you do? So I do something, and then I my, my next move that I'm required by the book to do is then to ask you, what do you do about it? So Scream! I mean, that's screaming is a free action. Always, always <laughs> allowed. <laughs> it doesn't trigger any moves unless, unless it does. <laughs> uh, this will be a fun bit for our listeners. <laughs> uh... And, and that about covers what I'm what I'm going to be doing in the course of this game. Uh, when we talk more about clans and your characters and some of the world uh, later on, uh, we'll I want to have an explicit discussion around each of your sort of desired tone for this game. Yeah, um, this is one definitely where I think it's easy to cause real harm to your players, <laughs> um, depending on how you explore some of yeah. the themes. I mean, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And so uh, yeah. I, I definitely want us to be approaching that in a very, very consent-based way. So, As all things um, should be. Love yeah, that. so we'll have those conversations a little bit later on. 